This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Bonnie Badnock. Bonnie is an in-the-trenches therapist, supervisor, teacher, and author who has spent the last 10 years integrating the discoveries of neuroscience into the art of therapy. She co-founded the nonprofit agency Nurturing the Heart with the Brain and Mind in 2008 and was founder and former executive director of the Center for Hope and Healing for 17 years in Irvine, California. Her work as a therapist has focused on helping trauma survivors and those with significant attachment wounds reshape their neural landscape to support a life of meaning and resilience. She's the author of several books, including Being a Brainwise Therapist. And with Sounds True, Bonnie Badnock has created a new online course called Trauma and the Embodied Brain. This is a course that takes place over eight weeks and is the first module in Sounds True's leading edge of psychotherapy year-long training program. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Bonnie and I talked about trauma as a relational experience and how it arises more from our sense of being alone with pain and fear than from the traumatic event itself. We talked about the research that supports this view and how being with someone in a non-judgmental state of presence is critical to the healing of trauma. We also talked about implicit memory, intergenerational trauma, and what it might mean to be a therapeutic presence in the world. Here's my conversation with Bonnie Badnock. Just to begin, Bonnie, I want to thank you for being with us here on Insights at the Edge, and thank you for being the lead-off presenter in Sounds True's Leading Edge of Psychotherapy year-long training program. Thank you for that. Well, I feel very honored to be asked. Thank you, Tim. Part of the reason we asked you to be our lead-off hitter, if you will, in our year-long leading edge of psychotherapy program is because you're really well known and well respected for bringing the discoveries of neuroscience and particularly the field of interpersonal neurobiology to the practice of therapy in a very pragmatic way. And so right here to begin, if you could let our listeners know a little bit about interpersonal neurobiology and why, as a therapist, and how, for you as a therapist, it's impacted your approach to working with people? Yeah, I would be very glad to do that. Um, yeah, I was fortunate back in 2003 to go to a conference where I heard Dan Siegel speak, and I got like goosebumps listening to him as I could hear as he was talking about these core concepts of interpersonal neurobiology, that it was really the underpinnings for the work we were doing, mainly with severe trauma at the nonprofit place that we had in uh, in Orange County. It really lit me up. And what I was hearing is the, is the scientifically grounded explanations for how it is that we continue to affect one another's uh, brains and one another's way of relating throughout our lives and how powerful we are with one another. And I I think that while I had maybe a felt sense of that prior to that, I didn't have any words for it. And I didn't have any way to um, actually communicate that with my interns and all of that, that it was, that was within the relationship that these neural changes would be happening. And so as I spent many years now with this, that's what I have found is that my way of being in the room has changed substantially. Um, 
I think all of us at times come into the therapeutic encounter with someone with an idea of how we would like to help them, how we would like to help them change how they are. And over the years, what interpersonal neurobiology has done for me is let me know that that is not only way secondary, but maybe really unimportant compared to being able to be with the person in a place of non-judgment and without agenda and make an open space in which they can come in and that their system will actually know what needs to happen next and will guide us with some help from me, of course, but will guide us down this healing path. So it's really changed pretty much entirely the way that I'm present with my clients, much more of an open listening place because that's what creates safety. And without safety, it's not going to go as deep or as well. Mm -hmm. Now, for somebody who has maybe heard of interpersonal neurobiology, but it's new to them, can you give them just a layperson's introduction? Sure. I, I think I can do that. You guide me along the way if there's something else you'd like to ask or or whatever it might be. I think so much of neuroscience focused for such a long time on cognition, and it's only been lately that we've actually looked at the more emotional and interpersonal sides of things, and that has led Dan Siegel to, and Alan Shore and Lou Cozzolino, who are kind of like the fathers of interpersonal neurobiology, to begin to talk about what Lou Cozzolino calls the social synapse, where two people meet, and where there's so much that goes on with so many systems in our body that we're influencing one another. So that brings in then several other people that whose work really has supported that view that we are in constant modification of one another, or co-regulation might be the word that, that would be used if you're a therapist. But that feeling that we're shaping one another's brains all of the time. And I think that that as we walk about in our world and we become conscious of that, we can begin to experience how that happens. So like if I walked into your office, Tammy, and I come in and I'm feeling bright and cheerful and I see that you have a sad look on your face, very quickly my whole inner being is going to change to come towards you and want to be with you in that place. Or the other way around, you know, if I'm, if I'm feeling kind of grumpy and you come in and you're delighted to see me, that's going to shape my neural firings about that and change how I feel and how I behave at the same time that it will then also change how you're feeling. So there's a, there's a moving in a circle back and forth and around in the relationship, and it's going on all the time. And as we become aware of this, I think that we, we get really aware as therapists and really just as human beings that we get wounded when we're with people who can't be with us, and we heal when there are people who can be with us. Now, you mentioned something interesting that one of the takeaways for you as a practicing therapist was moving into, I think you used the phrase, something like a, a state of agendaless presence or being open to how the client's own natural healing process wanted to unfold. And what gives you the confidence that there is some natural healing process that wants to unfold versus people just potentially rotting or not moving forward in some positive direction? Well, I think, again, this is a place where some kind of deep study of interpersonal neurobiology and relational neuroscience in general, as we, as we get to study how our skin, how, how all of our senses work, how our belly brain, we have a brain actually in our belly works and our heart brain, there's a heart there as well, how all of these systems have their underlying inherent health in them. And when we have trauma or painful attachment relationships or whatever it is that's really hurting us, the, the ability of these systems to manifest that is stopped. But when we come into contact with other people, then we found, especially someone who can hold a space for us, and we're able to work with these things that have been painful, that natural health that is contained in all of our systems is right there to manifest again. Um, and so, so learning about that and understanding it has been really helpful to embolden me to try it and see if it works. And what I know now after doing this for a while is that my goodness, the way that therapy unfolds when I'm present with people and with a storehouse of knowledge that I can bring to them also, but without an agenda of trying to get them to change in a particular way, that therapy goes on in, at such a much deeper level and also 
because I'm not interested in speed. The speed of therapy is how fast or slow it needs to go according to the person's system. But I find that the healing is deeper and much more thorough when they feel safe enough to open their system and begin to listen us together to listen to what their system is asking for. And I can give some concrete examples of that even from daily life as we move along here. Mm-hmm. But I think it was when that was learning it was learning about this these systems and how much they're always like our attachment system is always seeking warmer relationships. Our autonomic nervous system is always on the lookout for who will be with me. I mean there's so many ways that our systems stay healthy underneath the weight of the of the trauma and keep and that health keeps trying to come forward, but it needs a safe, open space to do that. Now, you mentioned the belly brain and the heart brain, and you talked about the skin. I I think a lot of times when people think about their brain, obviously they're not thinking about their belly brain or the intelligence of the skin. So tell me what you mean when you talk about there being brains in these different parts of our body. Yeah, it's these are all we think of. We do think of the of the brain as being primarily in our skull. You know, we maybe think of maybe a lot of people have heard about you know the amygdala kind of deep in there looking out for us, being vigilant, and then the 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 wrinkly part on top, the neocortex, is helping us think and make decisions and maybe have empathy and all that kind of thing. And that's generally what we think of when we say brain. Although I will say the belly brain has been in the news so much probably more and more people are realizing that there's a really vast intelligence down there and that's made up of of 100 million neurons. I mean, it's not a small brain. And that it is monitoring for safety all the time. It is looking out for us in terms of of being aware both through relationships and through um, also the food that we present to it, what is safe and not safe, and then helping us figure out how to protect ourselves if it isn't safe and how to open ourselves to receive more of good food, more of good relationships when it is safe. So we're we're learning we're learning about these things and we're also having to learn to listen to a new language because the brains in the body don't speak in words, they speak in sensation. So it's a matter of developing through a lot of practice, kind of meditative practice, to tune into these and, and begin to listen, knowing that at first we may not be able to hear very much because we're not used to listening to sensation, or maybe we listen to it, but we don't take it seriously, and we don't feel that it has a value to communicate to us. But I know that as, as I sit with, with my students and with my clients as well, that we do a lot of practice with, with the students that come here of listening, say, to our muscles or listening to the quality of what touch means to us. But with practice, over time, we begin to hear these voices that speak to us about the truth of how it really is for us. It's a developmental process. As I was familiarizing myself, Bonnie, with this program that you've created for the leading edge of psychotherapy, trauma, and the embodied brain, I came across this sentence, and it really, really struck me. So I want to unpack it and talk about it with you. Here it is. Trauma is a relational experience and arises more from our sense of being alone with pain and fear than from the event itself. So that bowled me over. That was something I did not know (laughs) at all, that it arises more from our sense of being alone with the pain and the fear of the experience more than the event itself. How is it that you've come to this conclusion, if we can call it a conclusion, this strong statement? Well, there's some research behind it. I'm not not apt to say anything that isn't backed up by research because otherwise it's just my personal experience. And, you know, that might be valuable for me, but maybe not for anybody else. So there is research, and and, and I'll share a little bit of that. But it's also, I think, our common experience. Something hurtful or painful happens. And if we're left alone with it, what happens is it begins to recede into the background and taking with it the tension in our muscles, the tension in our bellies, the rapid heartbeat and all of these kinds of things and begins to store them away because they haven't been held. If instead, when something painful or frightening happens, I have access to my friend, let's say, and I can say this thing really scared me and she can, let's say, listen to me really deeply while I share this, what I notice is is that as I share it, and maybe I need to share it a bunch of times, 
my system gradually begins to settle. And what just happened integrates now through, it, it is integrated into my kind of narrative of the day and all of that. And it doesn't have any of the residual pieces to it because together we have been with this and it has, it has settled. I feel settled and I feel my body relax. And then the trauma won't embed as a trauma. But if I'm stuck with it on my own and I don't have that support, it's a very good chance that it will embed as a trauma, which then can be touched and awakened later on. I think what this points to is the things that happen to us, that we hang on those things, the pain and the unbelievable you know, grief and sorrow over our life, that it may not be so much the things as whether or not we had to experience them alone. That's so yeah. important. It is so important. And, by, and not alone means something very specific. It means someone who will, without judgment, agenda, or expectation, just be with us while we move through our experience of it. Because if someone comes, to, I don't know about you, Tammy, but if I'm in pain or difficulty and I'm wanting to be heard and what somebody does is try to fix me and tell me what to do, mm-hmm. it actually makes it so much worse. <laughs> Because the thing I was needing isn't there, and the person I was looking to now is instead using their left hemisphere to try to get me to do something different, when that isn't what my system needed at all. I needed to be held and heard and and listened to until I was done. And so it's just, again, it's how somebody is with us. It's making that safe place for someone to be able to move through this however they need to move through it. Maybe I would have tears. Maybe I would be angry. Who knows what all might come up. But I know that when someone listens to me, I deepen and deepen into the experience until it's complete. And we all need one or two people like that in our lives, you know, where there's that mutual holding. Now, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I think if I had a magic wand, I'd create a lot more people in the world who were able to with non-judgmental presence hold other people's experience. And, you know, I'd like to become more of that kind of person myself, too. I mean, I've been growing in that direction. I'd like to keep growing in that direction. And so my question well, to you... always yeah, Okay, okay. But my question to you is, what do you think helps somebody become that kind of accepting space, if you will, for other people? I really do think it's a spiritual and meditative practice from my viewpoint. We could call it also just, you know, building a, building a better human being kind of practice. But I, I think we begin by noticing when judgments come up. Like, like, say I sit down to do a task and I notice that I have not done it properly and I hear a voice of judgment come up. And maybe I can then in that moment, and this is the tricky part, is accept my judging self begin to open into the possibility that I can welcome my judging self in that moment and just sit with the judgment. And then from there, as the judgment relaxes, go back and sit with the fact that I am a fallible human being who just screwed something up and just be present to that. And so it's about practicing over and over and over again, opening to what is. Um, the, 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 the phrase that gets said a lot around, around this place, both in training and I do this for myself, every morning, especially if I wake up in not a great place, it's everyone is welcome here. Meaning every state of mind, every experience that I'm having is welcome here and I will be with you as best I can. And then I fall off that train many times every day and then I begin again and come back to, Yes, everyone is welcome here. And what I notice is that after I've criticized myself for whatever it might be or had some other experience or tried to push away a sadness or whatever it is, that as soon as I say everyone is welcome here, my entire body relaxes. And then I can just be with what's arising in the moment. And I think it's that practice and and probably reading Rumi's poem, The Guest House, 50 times every day or something is is the practice, I think, to get there. Now, in talking about not being alone when something difficult or painful happens to us, you talk about how part of it is that there's someone who's there who can be with us in a non-judgmental way. But you also point in this course that you've created, Trauma and the Embodied Brain, to a second factor, which is, is our nervous system able to receive 
this other person? Can we receive even their witnessing presence? And I wonder if you can speak to that second piece of not being alone. Yes, that it is. It's, the, it's a, a crucial second piece. That the the one of the people that has most influenced me, along with Ian McGilchrist and, and Dan Siegel and Lou and those guys, is Steve Porges and his work on the autonomic nervous system and an understanding of what it is to be in what they call ventral vagal or the social engagement system and how that can offer people a safe landing place. But that if my nervous system is so either so um, agitated or so withdrawn that I can't feel the presence of that other person, it's still like I'm alone. Mm -hmm. However, what we know is every single one of us all the time, our systems are trying to move towards social engagement uh, somewhere underneath there. In other words, we have a presence for that. We have a preference for that state. And so if I am with someone again, client, child, whoever it might be, and they can't feel me there, if I can stay in my own social engagement system my, with my, and my autonomic nervous system is in that settled, open, receptive, non-judgmental state, eventually they will find their way to me. If, however, I kind of fall and get, I get, reson get resonating with them and I become, say, say, you know, agitated myself, now there's no safe space to land for either one of us. So it's, it's, it's about being willing to keep offering that to someone. You'll see parents do this. They'll have a child who is just losing it. And at first they try to, you know, they're holding this child and maybe talking soothingly, and the child can't even hear them yet because they're so upset. Now, if the parent then gets angry at that child or tells them to go to their room and, you know, don't come out until you can settle yourself down, that is going to embed a trauma for sure. If instead the parent in their wisdom can know that this child is just too elevated to hear right now and can keep being there in a soothing way with that child, the child will eventually come around. That child is not going to cry and scream forever. The child will find her way or his way back to that parent. And then you'll see both of their bodies kind of relax, you know, into this, into this state of safety together. And then, and then whatever it was that was causing the upset can be talked about or whatever needs to happen next will happen. Now, you mentioned that there's actually research that supports this idea that trauma is a relational experience and arises more from our sense of being alone with pain and fear than from the event itself. What's the research that supports this? The research is so cool because I, it was one of the things that, it's one of those pieces of, of research that, again, had, had gave me goosebumps. It's like, yes, this is, this is what I've been sensing, but this is, puts it into words and experience. So there's, there were some researchers that went to Nepal to see which of the child soldiers from Nepal, and these are kids from 5 to 14 that have guns and go out and become involved in war, young kids, 5 to 14, that, are, that go out and do this. And what happens when they return home? Who gets PTSD and who doesn't? So they were interested to see how, how it was possible for kids, some of these kids to be showing very few signs of trauma. And what they discovered, I mean, this is, there's lots of variations, but the big takeaway from it is that kids that were welcomed back by their parents, by the community, but also by their peers with love and acceptance and often with rituals of reincorporation back into the tribe, these kids not only don't get PTSD, but they show very, very few signs that they've even had a traumatic experience. The kids that go back to tribes where there was, uh, where they are rejected, where they are reviled, they, where you know they're pretty much cast out, almost all of those kids get PTSD. So it isn't. It, it, so the what? So taking that example, what I think about is it's who's with us before during and after a time of pain and fear and potential trauma that's going to make the difference for us. Because I'm also imagining that the kids in the first tribe, in the tribe where they're welcomed back, there's probably more secure attachment in that tribe for them to be able to do that. And they probably, when they were out there, had a little bit more connection with the other kids from their same, from their same tribe while they were actually in the war situation, whereas the kids from the other tribe, if they're rejected when they come home, I'm guessing there's less secure attachment there to begin with and probably less ability to be with one another when they're in the midst of the terrible stuff. 
So the combination of those three things is, you know, vital to how we get through traumatic circumstances. We know kids who are securely attached do better with trauma than kids who are insecurely attached. You know, and it's because they have usually a network of people around them to hold them, but they've also internalized the experience of being held. So there's even some holding from the inside. So that research with those kids in Nepal was just uh, really thrilling to me to see it so clearly, you know. And now let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking of a traumatic event that happened to them in the past and how, in fact, they were quite alone during that experience. And that's part of the reason it's so traumatic based on this conversation. But they were, they felt very alone. What do we know about trauma and the embodied brain? And what will help heal that sense of aloneness now about an event that happened a long time ago where the person felt isolated and didn't have a support system? Well, this is where I think for us therapists, it's so important that we cultivate, again, this non-judgmental agenda of state. When we, when we are receptive and open and curiously, warm, warmly curious about someone, I mean, you can probably feel that in your body right now, someone, how that is for you, Tammy, if someone approaches you that way, you know, they're just interested in you. And there's a warmth and there's no expectation that you'll be a certain way. That is what brings us into social engagement system when we're talking about Porges' work. That's what brings us into this place where we can actually connect with one another. And so if we instead meet people with an intention to shift them in a certain way, that takes us out of social engagement system and it isn't safe. So the single most important thing for a person seeking healing like that is to find either a good friend or if it's pretty severe trauma, then a therapist who can actually hold that kind of safe space so that their system is free to become vulnerable and for the experience of the trauma to gradually come into the room where it can be held, just like it's happening all over again now. Because what we know about the felt sense of trauma is it doesn't age. And when it comes up in us, what we say triggered, and I prefer the words touched and awakened because it seems to be a much more gentle process that happens when we view it that way. But when those experiences come up, it's just like they're happening all over again now. And so we really have access to that part of ourselves that was traumatized that now gets a companion, that now gets someone who can listen and be present with them and support them as they move through the experience. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Bonnie, help me understand more about this social engagement system and how I, as a person, might know when it's either offline or online. And I guess more importantly, if it's offline, what could I do in a situation to help myself be more available to connection? Well, of course, the first thing I'm going to say, Tammy, is I would never want you to have to find your social engagement system by yourself. So you find somebody you feel connected with who's in a calm state, and they will help your social engagement system come back on. You don't have to do it by yourself. A whole society is always trying to figure out what do I have to do to get myself to change in a certain way. And what we know for sure now is the easiest way to change how we are is to be with someone who's in in the state that we want to be in. Mm-hmm. Because we'll resonate with them and they'll provide the safety often for us to find our way back. And I didn't mean that as a criticism at all. No, I didn't take it that way. I, I'm you. talking to you, Bonnie. I feel nice and warm and cozy. <laughs> We're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel the same way. So, so the, the probably the, the, if it's okay if I talk a little bit about Steve Porges' work, I, I won't make it very technical, sure. but I think it's really helpful for us to understand what happens for us. Steve has this wonderful word called neuroception, 
And unlike perception, where we're consciously aware of something, neuroception is how our system is constantly searching around in this beautiful, adaptive, wise way to see if we're safe or not. And it happens below the level of conscious awareness. It's happening all the time. We're constantly scanning for mainly, are you with me? If we're with people, we, we get signals from their faces, from the tone of their voice from uh, the, the, the way their bodies are held, from their eye gaze, we get signals of whether they are feeling safe and therefore in social engagement. And then we can, then our system will tend to align with that and we can go toward them. And this is true at, especially for me, who's a big introvert, this is particularly true at a gathering of people I don't know. I can feel myself scanning for the person that I can see from their face, not consciously, but I'll feel attracted to somebody, I think because they're sending me signals that they're in that social engagement state and that then I can maybe go over there and get more comfortable because I'm not generally that comfortable in groups of people I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I system is looking for a place to land and it will land there with someone who's in that state because when our, when we have a neuroception of safety, all of our system aligns with the various things that that brings into being, which again are soft eyes, a quiet not necessarily a quiet voice, but there's a quality of voice because literally our vocal cords get tuned by the social, by this strand of the autonomic nervous system so that our voice changes, our ears are tense in a way that we don't hear the background noise, but instead we can really hear what a person is saying and we'll feel deeply listened to if someone's listening to us that way. But that only happens when we're having a neuroception of safety. So, we aren't, though, that neuroception doesn't just come from what's happening on the outside. It also comes from what we've got stored away on the inside. So if we've had a lot of trauma and it's not healed, that is going to make us feel unsafe more of the time than somebody who isn't carrying that. So our neuroception includes these internal stirrings of old trauma as well as what's happening in the outside world. But if I feel safe, I will be sending signals out to everyone that can, you know, see me and hear me that I'm feeling like it's safe and we could settle down and connect with one another. As soon as that sense of safety shifts and I now feel in danger, the first thing my system will do if I feel like there's something I can do about it, it's going to shift out of that state and go into some, what probably most people are familiar with, the word of sympathetic activation. Our hearts beat faster, more energy pours to our muscles, we get ready to fight or flee we may have a moment of freeze before we know whether to fight or flee, but we'll have this instinct that we have to protect ourselves, and it changes everything. The quality of our voice changes. The quality of tension in our face changes, especially in the upper part of our, upper part of our um, uh, forehead, and all of that becomes quite rigid. Um, our ears change so that we have to, we're, we're taking in the whole environment of sound to hear where the danger is coming from so we're no longer really listening. I bet all of us have had that experience where we're talking with someone and then suddenly we sense they're not there and we can just feel abandoned as all get out. Often it's because something went off inside of them and they've got a sense of danger and their ears let, their ears let go so that they could hear the whole room and they can't hear us anymore. It seems, though, Bonnie, that a lot of times when people feel, I'll use your word, touched by something traumatic... They're not in a place to go reach out to this warm, well-regulated person. In fact, a lot of times people want to hide or feel frozen or feel ashamed. And, right. you know, they're not able to reach out during those times when they really need to the most. Well, exactly, because that's just where I was getting to with sympathetic activation. We're going to fight or flee. We are not in a place to reach out. It's at those moments that we hope that someone who's in a better state than us and more in a, in, in a socially engaged, avail, in an avail, safe, available space will see us and reach out to us, come to us and say, you look scared or you look, you know, whatever it might be. That if we are more in our social engagement, we, are, we can also read faces better. And we might just go up to somebody and say, you're doing okay? I, I was just wondering, you know. And just that offer from someone who is not doing it in a critical way, but is doing it in a concerned way, can help the other person come toward that a little bit and then kind of settle down and be listened to. Mm -hmm. But yes, we are, have all certainly been and are sometimes in states where we can't reach out. 
And so we may then need to go get help for it later. I know I find myself doing that. I, something happens and, and I, and, you know, it really bothers me. And I find myself running away off into my left hemisphere and getting involved in tasks. And then I'll realize later I've done it. And I call my best friend and I say, can you listen to me for a little bit? This thing happened and I think it's really bothering me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she will. And then it relaxes. I'm curious, Bonnie, for you personally, how this area of trauma work became an area of specialization for you? How and why? Well, it's, it's really, I came to therapy kind of later in life, in my mid-40s. I, uh, I, have, a, I have a quite a history, a quite a painful, challenging family history that left both my sister and I pretty, pretty decimated in a lot of ways growing up with lots of breakdowns and just just really terrible difficulties for a long time. And it wasn't until my early 40s that I had a therapist that actually was able to help me with these deeper things that had happened. I'd had lots of help kind of building up my protective side again to ward off all this pain, but nobody who could sit with me in the pain and the and the terror of what happened when I was little. So in coming to, to relationship with this therapist, I was at the time, I was a college prof, and I found I was enjoying my time one-on-one with my students more in, in, you know, in, my, in that time than I was actually teaching in the classroom. And so as I was doing this, I was thinking, this is what I want to do. This has helped me so much. I want to help other people in the same way, other people who have been hurt, because it was really changing my life, uh, making me more available relationally, um, you know, I'm in very practical ways not so many nightmares, you know, not so many ways that I just couldn't really reach out in the world because I was so frightened all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was changing everything in my world. And so I, I went back to school and got a, got a, I'm a marriage and family therapist and uh, started working. We started an agency, two of us right after, out of grad school, got a supervisor and started an agency. And I I think we had a sign above the door that said, if there's anybody you won't see because they're too hard, send them to us and we'll see what we can do. So we had the reputation in Orange County of seeing people with really severe difficulties. And then I trained interns too to do that. And I, it's been extremely rewarding for me. Like kind of, It's kind of the ripple effect from that first stone that was thrown in the pond by my therapist back in my mid-40s. Now, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in, Bonnie, and what you have to say about it is intergenerational trauma and trauma that we might sense we've inherited from our family line. And if somebody has a sense that they're carrying something like that, but yet it's not fully formed, meaning I can't quite tell you exactly what it is, but yet I feel it how you might help somebody work with that so they can become more clear, actually, about what it is they're carrying and then how to resolve it. Yeah, I think a lot of people come in, most people probably come into therapy. Maybe maybe this is less true now than it was 10, 15 years ago, but most people back then anyway didn't come into therapy because they had a sense that there was some kind of traumatic history in their family. Most people came in because of a problem they were having right now, you know, and having trouble with my boyfriend, I hate my job, I feel terrible about myself, something along those lines. I don't like what I look like, whatever it might be. And then as they would share their history with me, which is always the place that I begin with people, is I want to hear a relational history. You know, what were their relationships like along the way? Then together we can usually begin to sort out that, yeah, it was really, yes, like, like somebody would say, well, it was generally really a good family. And I will ask, well, so what would happen when you were sad? And be like, oh, we weren't sad in our family. You know, and right there, you know that there's been a whole world of wounds that have been put away because there was no room for them in the family. But it didn't look that way or even feel that way on the outside because other parts were really good. So we begin to sit then, we begin to invite that if this child whose sadness was not seen could, could be with us, we, we would welcome her here. She's welcome here. She wasn't welcome in your family of origin, but that child self that's in you now is welcome here. And certainly the child will begin to accept that invitation. And then the person knows from firsthand experience what it was that actually happened for them. As they sit and feel in their body what this child's experience was and then receive the comfort that they didn't get when they were first the welcome and then the comfort that they didn't have when they were children. And then 
just as just as if their sadness had been held back then, it just begins to integrate, and this this is no longer held as a traumatic memory of sadness again alone. Now it's sadness held and comforted, and so it doesn't have to be kept away and in that place where it can be touched and awakened any longer. Do the things that hurt us get tucked away in particular parts of our brain so that we don't experience them all the time? Mm-hmm. And when they're invited up into the light and held and cared for, then those things don't have to go back into the dark again and wait now that they, they, there's a healing that happens. Was that clear? <laughs> when you say things that happened that we couldn't handle or weren't at the time, didn't have the resources to be able to handle, that they get tucked away in different parts of our brain. Tell me what you mean by that. Where are they tucked away? How are they tucked away? It's so interesting. This is probably research that's only a year or two old. They've discovered actually the chemicals that are, that when we are overwhelmed by something, meaning we can't, we don't have the resources for it to integrate available to us, either within ourselves or out, or, or someone from the outside, that there's a shift in the chemical secretions that tell them the memories where to go. And these memories are tucked away generally in our right, right, right limbic area which is that lower part of the brain that's underneath the neocortex and in our bodies. So if, if at the time of this traumatic experience, our muscles tensed and our belly tensed and our heart ached and, and, and all of those kinds of things, those, that experience, which is called an implicit memory, will be tucked away in our right hemisphere limbic system and it just will wait for the arrival there of someone to help us. But in the meantime, if there's a similar situation that happens, it can also be touched and awakened so that we experience that pain all over again without help. That can also happen. But it's so interesting that there's a wisdom in our system that knows that those things have to be tucked away so they're not available to us all the time because we couldn't function. So how wise is our system to be able to do that? So we're filled with these implicit memories that have been tucked away and people probably sense that in their own experience. What is the process that you engage with with someone who comes to you so that those implicit memories start to gently surface? Yeah, well, one of the things to say about implicit memory is that all implicit memory is not dark and painful. Every memory has an implicit layer. So if we've had wonderful, warm, nurturing experiences also, those implicit memories are there as well. They're just not tucked away, but they're available to us. So one of the things we want to do is together discover some areas, some implicit memories that we hold that actually can provide for us a kind of a safe place to land inside of ourselves. Um, I had a, a man who had really couldn't think of anything or have nothing kind of came to mind about anything positive until he was able to get in touch with the feeling of his grandfather holding him. And so as he was able to, and feeling this kind of warmth and care that this grandfather had for him. And so that became an implicit memory that we could go toward at the end of, say, a particularly hard time of working with trauma, and that he could settle there with the grandfather and me and feel a settling of his system. So it's really important that we not think that all implicit memory is, 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 is going to be hurting and painful for us, but that a lot of it is also very supportive. So we want to bring that in, certainly, as a, as a wonderful resource, a wonderful interpersonal, internalized resource. But as far as the more painful parts of all of this, what I have found is that, again, as we... Just as a person begins by sharing their story with me, whatever, their, whatever life story they bring, we notice that there will be a moment that feels like it has a little more energy to it. There's a part that almost is like calling to us for attention. And we're, we try to, again, without agenda, without expectation, to just be, just to be listening and feeling for those, the places where, where something's coming to the surface. Because that's their, their, that person is initiating this thing. It's their system showing us what needs to happen next, which I trust about 100% at this point. So as that part comes closer to the surface, the first thing we would do is just notice where it's happening in the body. Because there will always be some correlate in the body. It may, it may be several places. So the person might say, every muscle in my body is just tense as can be. So then we would be listening to the voice in the muscles. and just 
asking when it might be that the muscles felt just like this at an earlier time in life. And at that point, again, I'm only only offering the question, anything could happen at that point. It could be that a, a memory will come up really clearly. It could be that the sensation will turn off entirely because the person isn't really ready to go there. It could be that it'll come up for two seconds and then go away. And again, I have no horse in the race about what happens next apart from wanting to be as fully attentive to what is happening as I can be so that I can be present to it when it arrives. And after that part is there, we just follow along with whatever the experience is that's trying to unfold with, again, deep listening. And then I do things like sand tray and I do art and things like that. And there may come a time in all of this that, that we want to ask if that part would like another way to express. And again, it comes from that part of them, not from me saying we should do this, but just inviting that there are these other ways we could be with it as well. I wanted to ask one question about this total agendaless approach. Don't you think you have an agenda, which is that to be a healing agent, that the therapy itself generates healing? I mean, wouldn't you say that's an agenda and that therapists um, and you have well, that agenda to heal, to help people heal? I guess so. Maybe I think what I mean by agenda, though, Tammy, is a little different than that. So much of our training is around we can do this technique, we can do that technique, we can do this protocol, we can do that protocol, and that will help, it will help something. The other thing that happens is with evidence-based practice, it gets even more restrictive than that. It's like you, you have someone has anxiety, which immediately depersonalizes it because you're not now talking about a whole person, you're talking about an, uh, a one emotional experience, you know, or one embodied experience. So you've now lost the person to begin with. But if a person has anxiety, you do these six things and they should resolve. And if they don't, the person isn't being cooperative. So it's that kind of thing that I'm wanting to stay away from. Certainly, I have an intention to be as present in the room as I can be. But to me, that's different than having an agenda for the other person. Mm-hmm. I don't have an agenda that they be present in the room as much as they can be. I want them to be as they are. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about that, me bringing my agenda to their healing process, as opposed to me bringing all the stuff that I've learned about how healing might happen and offering it in an attentive sort of way to see, does it feel like your insides would like to do a sand tray? Is your inner world calling for the sand? Or people will come in and say, I thought about sand tray all the way here. I know that's where we need to go today, you know, because they know I want to hear from them and not be imposing on them what I think will be useful. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just have a couple more questions for you, Bonnie. One of the things I'd love to know is, why do you think the topic of trauma has become so popular, something that people are talking so much about, writing books about? Why is it one of the topics of our time, if you will? Well, I think that we're becoming more and more aware that everybody gets wounded along the way in life, that we all experience potential traumas and some of them in bed, that it's, that it's, not, it's not just, you know, that there's a, a war or someone, you know, gets abused a lot as a child, that it isn't something that happens to only the few. I think we're aware that between the experiences we have in attachment, the way our culture is around us, um, and just our broadening understanding through neuroscience, through relational neuroscience, I think, of all the effects these things have on us, it's kind of like we're all in this together. We're all dealing with some of this. And so I think it becomes urgent to understand it and also urgent to find ways to support healing from it so that we aren't, so that we can move forward in our lives with, you know, greater joy and greater, greater sense of ability to connect with others, which is really where our joy and meaning comes from. From a a maybe not very generous place, I've heard some people say, God, you know, now people just start talking about their traumas left, right, and center, and anything, even something quite minor, can be put into this category of being a trauma, you know. And I'm I'm curious what you think about that. Does something need to qualify to be called a trauma, or look, if somebody is saying this is a trauma, let's listen to what they have to say, regardless of how minor it might seem. Right. I think I think that um, in the in the actually in the uh, first chapter of my book, there's a definition of trauma that's I think different than the way we usually think about it. 
if we know that when we go back to what we were talking about earlier, Tammy, about how these memories of pain and fear that aren't met are sequestered in the right limbic area in the body, waiting for the time to heal. So I would say anything that gets pushed into that area qualifies as being a traumatic experience. So if a child goes to school and experiences um, being shamed by her teacher on, a, on an everyday basis and then blown off at home, that's going to create a little pool of trauma that is going to lead her to expect to be shamed, going to lead her to feel bad about herself. And it may not show up as anything major in the outside world beyond what we would call low self-esteem and things like that. But it's nonetheless, it's a pool of, of, in this case, shame, which is a kind of combination of pain and fear, that is hanging out there and is changing how she sees herself and who she's going to draw to her. So if we broaden the definition of trauma to include anything that doesn't have the resources it needs to integrate, it means we're probably all having traumatic, potentially traumatic experiences most days by that definition. And the reason I like that isn't because, you know, oh, now dramatically we all get to say we've been traumatized, but it puts us all in the same place of realizing that we all need help and to support one another as we go through life on what is not an easy planet, you know? I I notice I feel a a little overwhelmed by that definition. You know, another traumatic day. Well, now it was (laughs) Thursday. Another traumatic day. Well, but that, if, the, if, the, if the definition in our bodies is that trauma is this huge thing that knocks us off completely, yes, it could be overwhelming. But if instead it's seen as those places that are calling out for support, maybe what it does is support us in finding people who can be with us, who we can talk to frequently, and say, these are the things that I feel are troubling me. Or I just notice I'm holding my belly really tight. Could we just be with my belly? I mean, I have a number of friends that would, that would be very willing to say that to me at this point, you know, that would say, my belly is really tight. Can we just be kind to my belly for a few minutes and listen? So we become more aware that in our bodies, we are caring a lot and that we can really help one another be with that and that it can resolve. I mean, I think that, you know, people will say, to somebody else, well, that was abusive of you. And I think, well, I have a little trouble with that because I I don't see some of the things that are called that as being abusive. What it would be better to say is when you said that, I really felt it in my body. I felt my whole body tighten up. Could you, Could we try that again, you know? So... I don't know how it's going to go when this book goes out because that's the definition that's in there, but I'm sticking to it because I think at least it gives us a clear guideline of what it is that we want to get support for, which is all these things that have been tucked away and that are, that are then moving us down the road in a particular fashion that is maybe drawing in relationships that don't feel good. You know, when I talked about a child who's shamed a lot but otherwise feels like, you know, their world is pretty good in a lot of other ways, and can't understand why it is that every single person that they feel drawn to after they know them a little bit is as critical as can be. And they can't seem to find anybody that isn't critical. And because they're so used to it, it's what's familiar, that that's what gets drawn in and recognized. And who wants to go through life like that? So if we can, whatever word we want to use for that, these shaping events that are tucked away, it's really important that we get the support to, to release that and heal that so that we can have more fulfilling lives with one another. And for the sake of the planet as well. I mean, it gets very broad. You know, we don't see in a lot of the cultures around the world right now a predominant theme of how can we all be together. Mm-hmm. So we're in some pretty significant trouble on this planet right now. And I think, you know, what we're talking about really speaks to, to our daily life. And I'm, people around me are used to hearing me now say, how can we be a therapeutic presence in the world as opposed to being therapists? How do we walk around in the world in a way that we're available to people and listening and judging less at a time when, when the conditions around here seem to draw us to judge more harshly and strongly than ever before. How do we not fall into that? Well, and I think that's a beautiful note to end on, this idea of being a therapeutic presence in the world. 
If you were to summarize how you think each of us could do that, what do you think? What would be your kind of one, two, three, if you will, of really embodying being a therapeutic presence in the world? Well, I think it begins back where we were maybe 20 minutes ago, and that is saying we begin with ourselves, with being kind and receptive to all the different aspects of ourselves, the parts that are angry, the parts that are bitter, the parts that are joyous, you know, equally welcome, and learning to really listen to ourselves with kindness and understanding. And when we can do that, it really is much easier to do it for others as well. Not that we can't start by practicing with others, you know, we're just repeating the phrase, everyone is welcome here. So if somebody is, dry, is driving down the street and cuts you off, and you think everyone is welcome here, it can lead more to a sense of asking, you know, I wonder what's going on with that guy rather than wanting to scream at him. Mm-hmm. I wonder what's going on with him that he's not able to attend. So there's a kind of warmth and a kindness that begins to develop, but it really has to also take root, I think, with us, because then we can practice meeting our judgments with kindness and holding judgment side by side and then bringing all these other parts in until, until we feel a much more universal sense of welcoming presence for whatever's going on in the moment. And I think that when we're that, what happens is we, are in, we shift into that social engagement system. We walk down the street, people hear our voice, see our eyes, feel our body posture, and feel something different in their own bodies as a result of being met that way. And I just, I want to just say one final thing, Cammy, on that note. You know, the people whose eyes I see the most, who I feel most connected to, are the homeless people. I'm much more apt to make a real deep connection with the homeless people on our streets, and we have a lot of them, than I am with other people, with people wandering around with iPods in their ears, or hmm. I don't suppose anybody has an iPod anymore, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Something listening that they're listening to, not looking up, not connecting, rushing, busy, going from place to place, but in stopping and really making a deep connection eye to eye with a person who's on the streets and feels they feel met, and I feel met by them, is a deeply healing, therapeutic experience for both of us. Do you think that's partially because the homeless person who's available isn't rushing around? They're actually open, they potentially... I mean, it's interesting that you would choose homeless people to connect eye-to-eye with versus, you know, other people walking down the street. Why is that? Well, I would be happy to connect with other people walking down the street, but they don't seem very available for it Mm -hmm. because their lives are moving on at a very fast clip and there's so much of that task and behavior kind of thing going on, you know, how do I get ahead and all this kind of thing. And there's a lot of fear in our society and that shifts us away from being able to connect. But I think homeless people's systems, like all of us, are really hungry for connection and they don't have a lot else going on. You know, they're not, they're not rushing, just what you said. They're available for that. And I also think so many people won't make eye contact or do all kinds of other evasive things, probably because it hurts them so much they just can't. But when somebody is willing to do it, it's like the most important food. My daughter worked with homeless people, homeless teens on the street, and she has said that to me very many times, that, that just the validation of their existence and their value is probably more important than the $2 you give them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Bonnie, I want to thank you so much for being willing to be our lead-off presenter in Sounds True's Leading Edge of Psychotherapy online training series. Bonnie teaches an eight-week online class called Trauma and the Embodied Brain, a heart-based training in relational neuroscience for healing trauma. And if you're interested in more information on that, you can visit SoundsTrue.com and just type in Leading Edge of Psychotherapy. And thanks, Bonnie. I notice I feel quite met and loved just by talking with you and (laughs) have really learned about the value of reaching out and not uh, stewing in a feeling of aloneness when painful things happen. I think that was the big takeaway for me from this conversation and a very helpful one. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I have been my connections with Sounds True over the last couple of years 
felt very much like I've been invited into a family, and that's meant the world to me. So thank you as well, Tammy. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.